When we talk about drugs that could extend someone's life and put them in situations where those systems are just not designed for them, it's not okay. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Connecting ALS. I am your host, Jeremy Holden. In June, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration is expected to conclude its review of AMX35, a promising new drug to treat ALS that was developed by Amelix Pharmaceuticals. As regular listeners may recall, clinical trials showed the drug, which is a combination of two existing compounds, to be safe and effective. Clinical trial participants who took AMX35 showed a clinically meaningful slowing of disease progression and a statistically significant 6.5-month increase in survivability compared to patients who did not receive the drug. A few weeks ago, we discussed a parallel review of AMX35 by ICER, an industry stakeholder that tries to measure the value emerging therapies provide to help insurance companies and other healthcare payers establish pricing and access barriers. Since then, the FDA has announced the next steps in its review of AMX35. In the meantime, while ALS advocates celebrated a big win in December with the enactment of the Act for ALS, the fight now turns to implementing that bill and making sure the programs laid out in it are fully funded. Now, all of this is critical because speeding up the process of getting promising new drugs to the community while also expanding the drug development pipeline are key to making ALS livable while ultimately finding cures. Joining me this week to help make sense of all of the things that I just said and where things stand is Dr. Neil Thacker, Chief Mission Officer at the ALS Association. Neil, as always, thanks for being with us this week. Oh, thank you, Jeremy. You're, you're right. There's a lot going on. Yeah, there is. And, you know, just a few short weeks, it seems like things are, are moving. But I want to start where I ended things at the top. It was a big win for the community when President Biden signed Act for ALS into law. The bill establishes a framework for expanded access to experimental treatments, along with new mechanisms for funding research. But as of right now, nothing has been funded. The ALS Association, along with IMALS and MDA, recently sent a letter to Congress calling on lawmakers to fully fund those provisions of the law. But Neil, what do we know today about the next steps in making Act for ALS work for the community? Well, you're, you're right. We're still there in terms of getting the law funded. So the government has permission to spend money, but it doesn't have the money to spend yet. And so we've been working with Congress on getting the uh, Act for ALS included in the fiscal year 22 appropriations. That was the budget that should have been passed in October that still hasn't been passed yet. And I personally had uh, several meetings with Hill staff. Uh, I know the other groups have been meeting with Hill staff as well to get funding in for this year, as well as get full funding for the year after as well, FY23. And that FY23 process, fiscal year 23 budget process, is going to start as soon as the fiscal year 22 budget uh, is passed. The cycle continues. Do we know more today than we did in December about what some of these components of the law are going to look like, what the expanded access mechanism will look like, what some of these research grant programs might look like, or, or, or is that as well kind of still in development? That's also still in development. The government has to figure out the specifics of the rules. The broad set of rules are outlined in the law, but the very specifics about who can apply and when they can apply and how long they will be able to get uh, benefits for 
those things are are have to be defined by the government, and I don't think the government will be in a position to f- define those things at the very earliest until they get funding. But even after that, they probably have a few months minimum to figure things out. So a lot of work still to be done there. But speaking of bringing promising treatments to the community, we recently learned that the FDA will be holding a virtual meeting on March 30th to review Amlex Pharmaceuticals' new drug application for Amex 35. Every week, it seems I'm learning about a new acronym or subcommittee, Uh, but the March 30th teleconference will be a meeting of the Peripheral and Central Nervous System Drugs Advisory Committee. How do you anticipate this meeting moving the needle on the fight for access to Amex 35? Well, an advisory committee to the FDA is one of the routine steps they go through when they're considering a new drug application for approval. And what they promised the community is, the FDA did, is that they would have a decision on the Amelix uh, application by the end of June. So the fact that they're having this meeting at the end of March is a, is a really good sign. It means they're moving according to schedule. And um, these advisory committees are, are pretty important. Uh, the FDA almost always does what the advisory committee recommends. In December, the FDA called me and asked uh, that I recommend names of people with ALS that could serve on a committee for a drug, and they couldn't tell me what drug it was. But since this is the most, the advisory committee that is announced uh, soonest after that request, uh, I assume that was the one. And so I would expect one and hopefully several people with ALS are on this advisory committee we'll have to see. The FDA also has an opportunity for the community to submit comments about the drug. And so we're um, huddling up now with our advisors to figure out the best way to facilitate that. I think we'll have some information about that uh, next week or the week after uh, in case people want to submit comments. I I do think it's important that the FDA and the advisory committee, um, the advisory committee, again, they're all volunteers, they're not FDA staff get to hear uh, the perspective from the analyst community so we can send them uh, information we've already gathered. But but hearing directly from people is also really important. Yeah, a developing story. So a, a shameless plug, but a good opportunity to remind folks to make sure that they're checking in at ALS.org for the latest news and information on that. Um, you know, we, we talk often about urgency in the fight to create a world without ALS. Recognizing that drug development, that science needs to be methodical, recognizing that public policy is a deliberative process with separate agencies and branches of government interacting and responding to the decisions that one branch makes. How do we balance the need for deliberation, the need for being methodical with that desire for more urgency? Well, that's a really difficult question. And I think the the answer is different every time if you're going to have a system that's really flexible. And so when the evidence is stronger, I think you can move forward with more assurance. When the evidence is less strong, maybe you have to be a little bit more careful or you have to find a way to hedge your bets. And when the risk is serious and it moves rapidly, I think you have to move faster. And ALS is certainly one of those examples where it justifies moving a little faster. And also because of the existing treatment landscape is so poor, it also justifies, I think, moving faster. And we've heard that message 
over and over and over again from many hundreds of people with ALS. And we've been working hard with uh, both ourselves independently and, and with other organizations to get that point across to the FDA. And we'll have to see how they view this Amelix decision. Uh, hopefully they'll, they'll keep moving fast and hopefully that advisory committee understands a sense of urgency, uh, the, the necessity for urgency in this case. As with many things in life, uh, context is key. Um, Neil, before I let you go, you know, I mentioned ICER. Uh, and as we discussed just a few weeks ago, that organization's review of AMX 35 is going to be a long conversation. Uh, the, the findings are expected in September, if I recall correctly. But do we know anything today that we didn't know just a few weeks ago when the review was first announced? Well, I'd, I'd like to remind everyone, if you go to als.org slash ICER, I-C-E-R, you'll see our summary of whatever we know about ICER at a given moment, including the fact that they have an open call for feedback about the two drugs that they're reviewing, the AMX0035 and an oral form of Radicava, oral Adarivone. And we, I, I just, before this call, I was talking with a health economist about us giving um, some detailed feedback on a scoping document that they're putting together. I I continue to be very concerned about ICER. You know, there's there's these four assumptions here for ALS that ICER has to make that don't quite fit. And so, for ICER to to go through their process to make a pricing recommendation for a drug, they have to assume that there's an average patient. So they have something to base their formulas on. And of course, there's no average ALS patient. And then the second is they use this quality adjusted life year methodology where they've surveyed healthy people and asked them to imagine what it would be like to be in certain states, uh, have certain conditions, and ALS uh, ranks worse than death. And that doesn't capture the spirit and engagement and, and value of, of human life and life of people with ALS. And so I know that's upsetting to me and everyone on our staff and the people with ALS that we've been talking to about this. And so they've come up with an approximation, sort of a workaround, this concept of equal value of life years gained, where they're not valuing quality of life like they were with the quality process. They're just valuing the absolute amount of life. So a month of life is worth the same whether you have ALS or whether you, you don't have ALS. And that's good, but they don't necessarily take into account the lifespan of someone so if we add six months of life onto someone with 30 years, they have a mathematical approach to discount that. So it doesn't count as much as adding six months of life onto someone with three years of additional life of a lifespan. And so it's really complicated and it's an actuarial way of thinking about a, not the way that real people think. It's not about additional months of life. It's about time with your family. It's about getting to see your child get married or your grandkid graduate from high school or spend time outside with your dog or whatever it is that gives your life meaning, it has value on its own. And trying to put that on in a number, assign a number to that and put it into a formula. Again, it doesn't work. It doesn't work unless we can make everything average and standardized and countable. But human life and people with ALS, it just, it doesn't work that way. And so I'm worried about that. And I'm even more worried about the context of which, in which this will be applied. And so, you know, let's say ICER does their job and they go through their economic models and they come up with a pricing recommendation. It gets applied into a health system, which 
doesn't work that well. And, and I'll give you an example. You know, everyone in the association, we, we switched health insurance plans at the end of the year. And um, it's a fairly simple thing. Millions of people do go through it, but it was a bit of a hassle. So I had to use an app to put in the health insurance information for my pharmacy. I can do that. I have broadband. My, my hands work well enough. I can use an app just fine. I had to call my doctor and let them know that was fine. Turned out the app didn't work and I, had, I couldn't get my prescription. So I had to call the CVS and I was on hold for a long time. But when I got to talk to them, they could understand me. I don't have a problem talking on the phone. And so that, that worked fine as well until it turned out that it didn't work. And I got into this sort of triangle that everyone gets into at some point between the doctor and the pharmacy and insurer and everyone's saying someone else owes them some piece of paper. And so, you know, went through that round for a few times, a few more times on the phone, some emails, some, some web work. Finally, I just went to the CVS, stood in line for a few minutes, stood in front of the pharmacy assist for like 15 minutes while they did something with my insurance card and eventually got my medications. I can drive by myself to a CVS. I live close by. That's not a problem for me. I can stand by myself without a problem. That's not a problem for me. But when you start adding complications of ALS, you start thinking about people who don't live in a suburb with, with lots of resources. These things get really complicated. And that's the space we're playing in. Our health system has systematic biases against people, systematic biases for, for people of certain races and language groups. And it has systematic biases against people who have challenges with mobility and communication. And so to come into this space and to start making judgments about cost, that's great. But that information will not necessarily be used only for cost. It may be used to create administrative barriers to control costs. And those administrative barriers are differentially harmful for people with ALS. And so I'm, I'm, I'm very concerned about this. We're going to keep working on it, thinking about it, and I think more to come on this as well. Yeah, sounds like it. And I, you know, I think you're right, Neil. Everybody or most people I know have had some similar experience of trying to manage those administrative barriers. And, you know, in that context, just adding more in this space does seem like it, it could be problematic. Um, well, look, yeah, let me just say you're, you're right. <laughs> I don't mean to step up, but I'm, I'm pretty upset about this. You know, if you want to talk about allergy medicine, let's get some price controls on allergy medicine. There's multiple drugs in the same class. They do basically the same thing. They probably cost more than they have to. And if I have to go through a few hassles and call people on the phone or wait in line to get a drug at a better price, I'm all for it. I can deal with that. It's just annoying. But when we talk about drugs that could extend someone's life and put them in situations where those systems are just not designed for them, it's not okay. So yeah, this is this is something I'm I'm thinking about a lot, and um, yeah, more to come. Well, we will keep asking you to come back and walk us through as these fights move forward. Uh, Neil, thanks as always for your time. Thank you, Jeremy. Appreciate it. I want to thank our guest this week, Dr. Neil Thacker. Be sure to check out the show notes for links to resources that can help you stay up to date and to get involved in the fight to expand access to promising treatments. If you like today's show, tell a friend to check it out. You can find Connecting ALS wherever you listen to podcasts. And while you're there, be sure to rate and review the show. It's a great way for us to find new listeners. 
Our production partner for this series is Citizen Race Car. Post-production by Garrett Tiedemann. Production management by Gabriella Montekin. Supervised by David Hoffman. That's going to do it for this week's show. Thanks for tuning in. We'll connect with you again soon. Thank you.